We are recording on the 1st of September, and it happens to be Sparrow's third birthday since they went public. The release was on September 1st, 2020, and it just so happens this week we've also got a brand new release, version 1.7.9. I feel like this is the dad official wallet, right? This is the official wallet of the Bitcoin dad pod. Don't you feel? Because we both love Sparrow. And yet Craig Raw does not respond to my messages. Please, Craig, this is getting embarrassing for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At this point, at this point, we should send him an invoice for how much we talk about it. But Sparrow Wallet for me was intimidating when I first opened it up. And I was like, oh, I don't think I want a wallet this complicated because I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. What I later realized is that it has fantastic documentation. There's a good community around it with how-tos. And the tools it gives you helps you preserve your privacy and manage your UTXOs. And that's just a feature that continue to double down on with this new release. And I think that a large number of features can be a red flag for a product, but for Sparrow, it is not because in my view, it is very hard to hurt yourself with Sparrow. And with this new release, it's improved this ability to add labels to your transactions. You can actually label your UTXOs and your transactions and in a single wallet, logically separate your Bitcoin into accounts. And therefore, you've got Bitcoin that maybe went through a privacy technology, Bitcoin that you got from the Cash App, Bitcoin that you got from your business, and they don't have to touch. And it's easy to keep track of. So it doesn't solve the privacy problems of Bitcoin on chain, but it allows you to manage them a lot better with a great user interface. Yep. And they have an app for Linux, for Mac, and for Windows. So you can move it between desktops, which I do. I have moved between Mac and Linux with Sparrow, and it's worked really great. They also have fantastic hardware wallet support. The one area where they would get like my undying life devotion would be if they could somehow make my life easier taking from lightning sats and moving those on chain into Sparrow directly. You know, even if it was even if it was like a partnership with Voltage or Bolt or something, just some way for me to manage that where I didn't have to have a secondary intermediary wallet that I move things before I get them to Sparrow. I just that would make me so happy, especially as Lightning continues to grow. But if you just want the most solid on-chain wallet right now, it it is my recommendation. And now they got a birthday. It's their birthday and they got a new release. This is the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 1st, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I am recording as always with Oh me. Hey. Hello everyone. Welcome back. It's Chris. On today's episode, we are going to discuss some unfolding drive chain drama. There's been a lot of posting on Twitter, on Noster, and I think that it helps get into some of the views and and maybe even facts about side chains and how people sort of view technology on top of Bitcoin. In economics, Arthur Hayes has given up on his AI investment pontificating and is back to his bread and butter of macro and monetary policy analysis, which I think is really interesting and won't surprise any listener, but worth covering. In privacy, we found the actual U.S. Justice Department tornado cash indictment, and it really paints a much more complicated picture of the issues around tornado cash. Yes, there was privacy technology. Also, yes, they tried to turn it into a business with financial privacy as a service. I don't have an issue with that. The U.S. government does, however. We have some interesting energy news. The Cambridge Energy Study of Bitcoin Mining Energy Consumption has a big update, and they have been overstating 
both, I believe, energy consumption and the carbon intensity of that Bitcoin energy consumption. This is technically important because studies like this are often cited as uh, part of the policy discussion in attacking Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Will these corrections make it into the conversation? I'm not sure, but they need to happen either way. Then in Bitcoin education, we have a meaty Bitcoin optech that discusses a Lightning Network vulnerability that was so obvious in retrospect, it really makes you realize that Lightning is very experimental and should not be used with large amounts of money. And then we have some boosts and that's our show. Yeah, I'm, I've been looking forward to this show all week because I've been watching this drive chain discussion evolve on on bitcoin social areas and in chat rooms and i find this drive chain drama fascinating because the high level takeaway is no one's in control of bitcoin and 15 years into this thing we still don't have like obvious paths for consensus we don't have a group of people that can just make something happen and there's still very vigorous debate and so the thing that everybody's really arguing about is bit 300 and bit 301 or i guess kind of known as drive chains which would add into bitcoin a way to natively bridge to separate chains in a trustless way right so that's the core of what's being proposed is side chains that can have a native mechanism to go back to the bitcoin main chain and it's caused an explosive debate because people feel like they either have to be for drive chains or they have to be against drive chains and the camps are setting their their walls up and they've built their arguments and i think that it's helpful to think back to pete rizzo's discussion of bitcoin culture from i guess a year two years ago when he was talking about the bitcoin community as a group of monetary maximalists who are very focused on bitcoin's monetary characteristics and are perhaps less technical and less interested in technical upgrades and then bitcoin platform maximalists who are kind of more like developers and who are interested in bitcoin as a platform that enables other use cases both monetary and non-monetary and i think that drive chains and side chains in general fall between monetary and platform use cases because on the one hand drive chains are a attempt to scale bitcoin because blockchains do not scale and bitcoin might be able to accommodate 100 million users but it definitely cannot accommodate a billion users and so for users who don't have enough money to transact on an expensive layer one bitcoin what are their options well lightning frankly is not a great option because lightning network security rests on the assumption that if you don't like what's going on on lightning you can settle with a layer one bitcoin transaction but if you can't afford the layer one bitcoin transaction then lightning network security fails so drive chains are a way to essentially have a special type of address on the bitcoin main chain and when you send bitcoin into this address they appear on another blockchain and this blockchain anchors its state into the bitcoin history with a transaction in every block but it's a small transaction in the bitcoin block but it points to a state on the drive chain and the drive chain could have 100 megabyte blocks or gigabyte blocks or whatever and so it's a scaling 
technology. It has strictly worse security in theory than Bitcoin because it's not Bitcoin. It, you know, it, it inherits Bitcoin security, but there are some assumptions about security on the drive chain and they require miners to have an incentive to want the fees from the drive chain and not to attempt to steal all the coins in the drive chain. And as a result of its complexity, I think a lot of people are very hostile to it from a complexity. What does this do to the way that miners will behave on Bitcoin? Maybe it changes miner behavior and that could really hurt Bitcoin, but also the use case, because I think that right now the Bitcoin community is made up of people who have layer one Bitcoin and don't see the need for Bitcoin on another layer because they have it on layer one. So there's mm. kind of a chicken and egg problem because in a way, drive chains for the next billion Bitcoin users who aren't here yet. So how do we advocate for right. them? Or is that even a, a useful way to think about the growth? And, of and they're incentivized by their bag, too. That's a great point. That's a really good point, Dad. Um, can I steel man some of these? Because I think you and I don't fully agree on this topic, but I could be persuaded. So I want to throw a couple steel man arguments your direction and see what you think. So I've, I've, I have synthesized uh, all of the drive chain criticism and we'll link to a couple of really great roundups that like cover the top 10 criticisms. And there's one thing that isn't covered in there, but my old man experience is sensing a repeat in history. You know how history rhymes? And the rhyme I'm hearing here that I don't know if I actually agree with the premises is that Bitcoin needs to scale to a billion users. And stick with me for a second. But for 20 years in the Linux desktop, the conversation was we need to make the Linux desktop accessible for all kinds of new users because it's too hard for new users. It's too hard. And so Canonical and Red Hat and Seuss invested so many man hours into trying to make it appealing to new users and they pissed off the more experienced long-term users. And the reality was that billion users they were expecting, or in their case, six billion or whatever it was at the time, that never arrived directly to the Linux desktop. It ended up coming through Android and Chrome OS and web servers that run Linux. And so the actual hands-on people that use Linux is still roughly around what it was 10, 15 years ago. It's just grown by three or 4%. And then the, all the people that are writing on top of what Linux provides is in the billions. But they themselves are not individual Linux users. They never adopted Linux directly, even though for 20 years, all these companies and all and people like me were advocating, we got to build it for the new user. I turned away. I turned. I realized a while ago that was nonsensical. But I hear that with this argument in Bitcoin that we have to make Bitcoin scalable to a billion users somehow. I don't know if I actually agree with that premise. I think it does need to be able to scale beyond what it can scale today. But I am very skeptical that average everyday people are going to be ever, ever, ever doing on-chain transactions in their entire life. So I, I don't know, like, if I agree that we have to make it scalable to a billion users and the only way to get there is through drivetrains, because it seems to me if Bitcoin were to do nothing but bug fixes and security fixes for the next five to 10 years, it would still win by default. And so in a way, there is some logic to staying the course, keeping things simple while the SEC and the governments in general around the world are very litigious around cryptocurrencies. The altcoins can continue to do all these different things that get the SEC and other regulatory bodies around the world going after them. And Bitcoin clearly remains a commodity over these next few years as we get through this window maybe we get a different administration in that is a little more friendly to this stuff it just seems to me like we run the risk of drawing in the attention of regulators and making bitcoin something broader than it needs to be right now 
And I don't necessarily agree with the argument that Bitcoin isn't innovating because there's lots of innovation that we've still barely taken advantage of. Um, there's so many things that we've just rolled out in the last few years, like lightning really should be years further along than it is, but it has taken us so, so long to begin to deploy it or taproot. I think there's a lot here. I think the first part of your critique, you know, and you've had, you've been watching the Linux space much longer than me. And I concede your point that dumbing down Linux to make it more accessible never worked because Apple was already super accessible and Microsoft was the default. So Linux scaled through Android and things like the Steam Deck, not through more people running Linux on their computer. By essentially being infrastructure. Now, is the drive chain not potentially Android in this example? It might be the sort of new Bitcoin platform that's analogous to Linux infrastructure that everybody uses and doesn't know what it is. So that's one thought. And the layer one is kind of like the kernel almost. Exactly. Something like that. Hmm. On the subject of the sort of regulatory risk to enabling use cases that altcoins currently do, like DeFi and privacy and things like that on a drive chain, I guess I don't necessarily see it because I think that political discourse is not really driven by technical reality and facts. It's driven by political expediency and emotion and misunderstanding. So I don't really think that the drive chain changes that because there already are assets on Bitcoin. There are BRC20 altcoins trading on Bitcoin. I think yeah. most of the interest is gone. And ordinals. So yeah. there already are non-monetary speculative use cases on Bitcoin. Yeah. And plus, people have just been stashing stuff in the blockchain for years. You know, right. people have been. Yeah, that's true. Okay. People have put binary hash representations of uh, sexual material in the blockchain as a way to sort of attack Bitcoin, because now if you run Kapersky on your computer with a Bitcoin blockchain, they're going to flag the DB block file that contains this hash, and they're going to say that looks like CP or a virus. So people have put bad stuff into the Bitcoin blockchain already, and they're going to put more bad stuff. I mean, with ordinal inscriptions, they can literally load JPEGs of bad stuff into the Bitcoin blockchain if they want to. That's already here. So I don't think that another use case uh, changes the position of Bitcoin re-regulators. My fear would be that a drive chain scam, essentially affinity scams on the reputation of Bitcoin. Oh, look, we're, they'll say something like kind of like Stacks does. That's, sta that's Stacks. Stacks is the an, an yeah. affinity scam, just like you're describing. Right. Right. And I just feel like this almost is a legitimizing layer to those. But yes, yes, we're, we're, we're our own token, but we're a drive chain to Bitcoin and you trust Bitcoin, don't you? And that just to me is going to, if that goes to its ultimate conclusion, it's going to draw attention into Bitcoin that is negative, right? We barely, we don't, we don't make a distinction right now to the general populace, the distinction between Bitcoin and Ethereum and Cordani. Like they see them all as scams. And one of the main things, one of the number one pushbacks I have with the JB audience who doesn't understand Bitcoin is Bitcoin is just this crypto crap. It's the number one thing I get. And I think if we start having more crypto-like functions, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to make the case that Bitcoin is the legitimate one and all these other ones are scams. Uh, and I know it technically will still be true. I mean, I just don't really think that matters because... I don't think that people change their views because of logical arguments. They change their views when they feel like it. And I think okay. <laughs> that what makes Bitcoin win are its monetary properties that might potentially be enhanced by a drive chain. 
I think this gets into the argument that no one wants or needs a drive chain because look, we have two side chains on Bitcoin already. Well, technically, I think there are several, including a space chain, but we've got Liquid, which is a federated side chain run. Well, Blockstream would say they're a technology provider and it's run by a federation. But I mean, I think everyone feels that Blockstream is behind it and actually Liquid defaults if things go wrong to a Blockstream controlled multisig address. So I think functionally, Blockstream kind of exerts control over the liquid sidechain. And if regulators went after them, they'd have material there to, you know, to point to that. There's also something called RSK, which is a merge mined sidechain with Bitcoin that has a Ethereum virtual machine um, functionality. And both chains have relatively low usage, but usage on liquid did increase as Bitcoin fees increase. So, so some activity moved there. And I think that there's an argument that because these side chains don't have a lot of activity, people don't want a drive chain. And I think Paul Storks might say, well, the issue is that the drive chain is better because it's a trustless two-way peg. And that is not twice as good as a federated one-way peg because the problem with Liquid is you can send Bitcoin into Liquid trustlessly because you can send to the Liquid multisig address and then take that transaction and do a little math magic using your elements D liquid node, and it'll give you liquid Bitcoin because it'll see that you sent in those Bitcoin on the main chain. The issue is getting out. You can't just send out of liquid into Bitcoin. The only people who can withdraw Bitcoin from the multi-sig address that represents all the Bitcoin locked in Liquid are Liquid Federation members. So technically, you can't withdraw from Liquid. You can only sell your Liquid Bitcoin and receive Bitcoin on the main chain. And so I think Paul says a drive chain is 100 times better than that because you don't have to sell your drive chain tokens. Though he does say in most cases, that's probably what you would do. But he says you can actually withdraw them through this sort of complicated waiting period that the drive chain requires for withdrawals. Now, I think a lot of this is speculative. We don't know how people are going to behave with new technologies. One issue with Liquid was that it was launched a long time ago when there were much less people involved and, you know, they may have lost their opportunity for everyone to be excited about it and try it. I don't know. I guess I just don't see the the same risk because the first argument against drive chain I see is a lot of non-technical monetary maximalists saying, I just don't want changes to Bitcoin. And I think that that is a pretty weak argument because Bitcoin needs to change. It needs security updates. It needs maintenance potentially needs a hard fork to solve a timestamp issue that's going to stop the chain in 100 years. So Bitcoin is going to change. And the issue is the degree to change. Then there are these arguments about how the drive chain and the mining peg and whatnot will result in you know weird financial incentives for miners that will screw up Bitcoin main chain activity because the miners will be too busy attacking the side chain and performing uh, minor extractable value on the sidechain. I think that's worth considering. I don't know how you prove or disprove that. So it, it sounds a bit fuddy to me in some respects. I think those are the, the two big conversations. And one, I dismiss because it's non-technical and I just don't like change, which is unfeasible. And the other, I think, has something there, but I wonder how to evaluate it.
I suspect if the utility and integration were there, I would already be using some of it. Uh, you know, I expressed how I'd love to be able to move from Lightning to uh, Sparrow. But what I really would like is a mechanism to buy sats, say on RoboSats, and move them through something like Arc, and then on essentially coin joining them, and then moving them on chain. And if there was something that had utility like that, that maybe enhanced my privacy or made it cheaper to move the sats and had integration, I think I'd probably be using it already. So I think some of it is we just, there needs to be some user demand for some of this stuff. A lot of it is the people that are using this stuff at this stage are technical enough that they can just get by with the existing solutions. But if something came along that was better and also got developer cooperation, I wouldn't have any issue using it if it was you know something that was well known and considered safe. Now, should we take a break from drive chains and discuss the real side chain in the room, which of course is the various balance sheets of the <laughs> global commercial banking industry? Yeah, the <laughs> that was a rough transition, right? Those are the real altcoins, right? <laughs> like, yeah, talk about old school blockchain technology. And I'm referring to Arthur Hayes' latest article, Kiter Board, where he always begins his articles with a description of his billionaire lifestyle, and now he's into kiteboarding, and how the challenge of falling down on a kiteboard is you have to control your kite so it doesn't crash into the ocean or strangle you or something before you can get back onto your board. And this is a metaphor for Arthur and many other commentators' view of current Federal Reserve monetary policy, which is that they are trying to ride two horses with one The issue being that the Federal Reserve has a view that they can control the U.S. inflation rate, whatever that means. I think basically it means consumer price indexes, but maybe they sometimes mean monetary inflation when they say that. I don't think so. I think they really just care about consumer price indexes. But they think that they can control this by raising short-term interest rates. And the model for understanding how short-term interest rates affects inflation is I think it's quite a complicated uh, chain of thought. But the idea is that if you raise short-term interest rates through a process of maturity transformation, banks and lenders will lend less long-term because they can receive higher short-term yields. You're essentially increasing the opportunity cost of issuing a loan. And the theory is that if you encourage the financial industry to issue less loans, you're actually lowering long-term growth. And if you lower long-term growth, you will weaken employment. And if you weaken employment, then wages will not have upward pressure and may even have neutral or downward pressure as people lose their job and then accept a lower paying job just to survive. And this will reduce inflationary pressures because the bulk of the U.S. population earns wages. And if wages are lowering, then consumers will not bid up the price of goods. And there are many issues with this line of thinking. Uh, Jeff Schneider, the euro dollar guy, would say that this understanding of how lending works is completely flawed. I think that uh, other social commentary would say that this model of inflation, which is called the Phillips curve that relates employment to inflation, is basically uh, a classist justification for the Fed's existence in their policies and blames inflation on average people when really it's a more complicated problem and likely related to uh, policy issues. But if we accept the Fed's model, 
the problem that they're facing is that their short-term interest rates, the Fed funds rate, they do not naturally match Euro-dollar interest rates throughout the economy anymore. And this hasn't happened since 2008. Basically, the, the parity between Federal Reserve interest rates and sort of global interest rates broke in 2008, and it's never returned. But in an attempt to force interest rates together, the Fed now pays interest on reserve balances at the Fed. And they previously didn't do that because they previously said, listen, if you want to deposit money at the Fed, which is risk-free because we can always print money to pay you back, you shouldn't be paid for that. That's like uh, you're, you're, you're essentially getting insurance because if you put money there, you'll never lose it ever. And so why would we give you an interest rate on that? But now, because the Fed is attempting to raise interest rates, but market interest rates are not rising to meet the Fed's interest rate targets, they now also pay interest rates on these reserve balances at the Fed. And it's a way to sort of force, they hope, market interest rates to follow the Fed's target interest rate. I think that since there's no logical reason to pay these these interest rates, uh, you know, it's, it's essentially just free money for financial institutions that can access the Fed. I think it's kind of more evidence of the breakdown of this monetary system that the Fed claims to manage, because it's not acting as expected due to the Fed's models. But what Arthur is getting at is that as you raise interest rates, you're supposed to be reducing lending, which reduces the total amount of money in the economy. This has the effect of one, reduced lending reduces long-term growth, therefore puts downward pressure on jobs, and therefore there's less wage inflation, as the Fed calls it, and less inflationary pressure. But also, if you have a quantity theory of money view, which the Fed may have, you're also reducing the amount of money in circulation in the economy if money is being deposited with the Federal Reserve. But here's the problem. As you raise interest rates and pay interest on reserves at the Fed, you are injecting money back into the economy. And this is the kite versus board problem. This is the riding two horses with one because of the way that the Fed has kind of just thrown emergency facilities together, they're now in a situation where as they raise interest rates, which should be reducing the total amount of money in the U.S. economy, because the Fed does not really believe that the U.S. is a global economy. They really are very focused on just the U.S. and they ignore the reality that we're in a global economy and money instantly moves everywhere in the world very fast. They're actually increasing the money supply via interest payments because so much wealth has been concentrated into financial institutions that now have balances with the Fed. That's his broad point. Did you follow me? Yeah. I mean, I would give the Fed credit. They have had some results. Like They've definitely made life feel more painful for average people that are trying to get a home loan right now or a car loan. And uh, in the latest jobs reports for August, we see a one million part-time job surge. So people are going from full-time jobs part-time jobs. So it feels like that is beginning to happen. The employment situation as of August 2023 is beginning to start looking a little shaky. We're seeing part-time jobs go up. So that's been effective. They, they've successfully made the middle class feel the pain. But Arthur's point is the middle class is shrinking. The middle class has less wealth than it has at any other point in the last 40 years. And wealth is being concentrated in the wealthier segment of society, let's say the 1%. Mm. And True. these one percenters, they have access right. to products that give them access to this Fed interest on reserve balances 
type monetary transfers. So actually, as they raise interest rates and crush the, let's say, 90% of the economy, 90% of the workforce, 90% of the US population, they're making that 10% that have already accumulated disproportionate wealth richer and richer. And that 10% they're spending it is, is what currently affecting the CPI because they spend on services. Their service spending is holding up the CPI. And so the Fed has basically broken, in many ways, the relation between interest rates and CPI, which was always a weak relationship, but you know they've, they've made it much worse. And so this really is you're, you're sitting on two horses, you're trying to ride them both, and they're going in the opposite direction yeah. from each other. Yeah, right, right. And also, you're doing all of this pressure on this less and less influential market uh, or segment while their debt is at astronomical high historic levels. So they have even less cushion, less buffer, but it just doesn't matter because the 10% left that is influencing things is really all all that really needs to, I guess, I guess their spending is so significant. That's really all that needs to matter. It's pretty dystopian, though, because it means that um, there's very little cost to crushing the middle class. Like now that it's now that it's gotten to where it is, uh, it feels like the decline is going to be even faster. Since there's really no backlash, uh, the politicians will remain in charge. You can have your Mitch McConnell's who can now have two public seizures in a month in a press conference and they'll continue to be reelected. It just continues because they're not impacted at all by it, because along with our purchasing power, that same decline has apparently happened in our political influence as well. So it's uh, it's bleak. It makes me want to run to the mountaintop and tell everybody to go buy some Bitcoin. Arthur finishes up with a discussion of a St. Louis Fed research paper about fiscal dominance, which is very hot right now. It's kind of making the rounds. And what's fascinating is that this is a paper about financial repression, which is my favorite economics term. And it's the practice of controlling government balance sheet problems by raising inflation and using that inflation to confiscate the wealth of the population that holds the national currency of the government that has this balance sheet problem. And so the Fed is currently fighting inflation. And I think that that's a very emotional battle that Jay Powell is engaged in. I think it has to do with how he sees himself in history, how he wants to be seen as a Fed chairman like Volcker, who made hard decisions and sort of did right by the US economy long term. And I think it's very irrational based on a lot of economic data, the direction he's taking Fed policy. And another issue is that he is running full tilt into the brick wall of the US deficit. As the Fed raises the Fed funds rate, they're increasing the cost of borrowing for the US government, which by any metric is already inside a government debt spiral. And so fiscal dominance or financial repression, this is how the government debt spiral is released. And it requires inflation. And whether the inflation is hidden by sabotaging publicly available data about the CPI and prices, or whether it's overt, it's a big political problem. And there is very little chance that financial repression does not happen in the US. And the phenomenon of geriatric politicians who keep on getting elected, even though you think, how on earth could this person get elected? This is a sign of a political system that is malfunctioning. It, it doesn't have the ability to change. It doesn't have the ability to move away from a failing policy, a failing trajectory. And financial repression is the next easy choice if you can't make hard decisions. 
and it will increase political pressure in the U.S. because it is a wealth transfer from poor people to rich people. Man, that's bleak. Uh, And I think it's already been happening. You know, like I've mentioned this last week, we talk about it like it's this is something that's going to happen. No, it's what's happening. It's been happening for a while and it just continues on this pace. And I turn this around in my personal life. Uh, This is what motivates me to continue to sacrifice so I can allocate to sats. But also without this, I don't think my wife and I would have been motivated to learn some electrical skills, to learn soldering skills, to learn gardening skills, to learn how to change my own oil and do my own basic repairs because all of this has made me realize that if you synthesize where this inevitably ends up, it's a decline in services, in businesses, in quality of life for people that aren't aware of what's going on, which is going to be the majority of people that are just going to be living their day-to-day lives. And so I've internalized this as an opportunity to just learn more, try to become a more sovereign individual in general. And one of the life experiences that gives me some peace of mind is this stuff always takes so much longer to play out than I initially thought when I discovered it. And so I have hopefully years to continue to add to this skill set. And I'll just use this time to invest in myself and invest in Bitcoin. And when we get to the other end of it, even if Bitcoin's not worth a whole bunch, my personal investments will be worth a whole lot. And ideally, both will be worth quite a bit. I did not realize your wife was a hand with a soldering iron. She's my chief engineer. Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I know you two basically run a mechanic shop. I mean, you can do <laughs> RV repair, which is quite specialized, right? Ultimately, if you're going to own an RV, you really ought to just be willing to DIY stuff because otherwise it gets so expensive. And so that lesson, you know, it just first few years we owned the RV, we paid somebody to fix stuff and then that got too expensive. And then you learn and it's not so bad. There's lots of tutorials on YouTube and online, so it's not so bad. And we have a really good community in our matrix room I can bounce ideas off to. YouTube certified. That's the way to go. <laughs> These days, I sometimes feel like it gets you more qualified than the pit place you're taking your car or your rig. How do you, you know? think they learned? <laughs> I don't know. So you sometimes all, I don't all know. The way down. I don't know. So that's how I internalize this. I mean, it's it's pretty bleak, but uh, it seems to be really historically what what happens. Dick Cheney's kind of famous for a quote about this: "Is governments create reality and history, and then the populace spends." you know, the next decade figuring out the new reality. And by the time they figured it out, a new one has begun. And so we are in the late stage of understanding how all of this works, but it doesn't mean we're in the late stage of it playing out. And the U.S. Justice Department case against Tornado Cash is still playing out. We've mentioned it quite a few times. And having finally read the entire indictment, I have to say that it's really complicated because on the one hand, a concern is that sanctioning the Tornado Cash smart contract, sanctioning the developers of Tornado Cash, this is going after open source software. In a way, they created some open source software. Anyone could read it. They put it on the Ethereum blockchain. And this software, if you interact with it, gives you the ability to perfectly mix all the Ethereum that goes into the smart contract and then withdraw it again using kind of a receipt that the smart contract gives you. And so this gives you pretty good privacy on Ethereum. And it got pretty popular. I mean, Vitalik was famous for doing this with some of his stash. Many open source projects that accepted Ethereum donations, people would tornado cash the donations first. Of course, that impacted those projects pretty bad later on. 
And also the North Korean Lazarus Group hacking team <laughs> also put over $400 million through this contract. And I think that was kind of the problem that the US government had with it. The issue is this is open source code. And if you start sanctioning developers for open source code, where does that slippery slope end? There are serious issues around freedom of speech. The problem here from the protecting open source perspective is that the behavior of the Tornado Cash developers looks really, really bad, according to the Justice Department's description. They raised money. They raised over $900,000 from a venture firm, and they maintained using money from this raise and their own private accounts a website that was basically a web front end to Tornado Cash. And this Tornado Cash front end, it was not the smart contract, but it enabled you to interact with the smart contract. And it made it easier. And like, not just a little bit easier, it made it 99.999% easier because interacting with a smart contract, like directly on the blockchain, coding that yourself, you are very likely to lose all your money. I have never done that. The thought terrifies me. I have done something much simpler and managed to lose a large amount of money. So like directly interacting with a smart contract, not very feasible even for a power user. So their UI front end was very important for interaction with Tornado Cash. And that was centrally hosted by the developers. Okay, so this is kind of gray area. You know, they're, they're giving you access to the thing but are they really controlling it? Well, they did control the Tornado Cash smart contract in 2019 before they removed their admin keys in 2020. And a lot of stuff happened on that smart contract. A lot of Ethereum moved through, through there in that year. So that's another problem. You did control it for a while. Maybe the it's just open source software argument doesn't apply because they did control it for over a year. Then it gets really, really bad because in December 2020, they created a DAO. The DAO created a DAO token called Torn. It gave 30% of them to the Tornado Cash founders and investors. And then they kind of seemed to upgrade the smart contract to incentivize liquidity providers to Tornado Cash to hold the DAO token. And this ended up with at least one of the developers having, I think, around $7 million in a, of cryptocurrency in a Binance account. So they made real money from this. And it was, it was mostly the torn token. So, you know, like, what's the, the takeaway here? The founders created a business around people interacting with open source software. And they also had a lot of internal communication which the Justice Department has gotten. I think they, they got someone's phone, and so they have all the signal messages. And so it really looks like they were talking about how to create a business to help people evade sanctions and money launder. Another way of saying that is they were providing financial privacy. But we're allowed to say financial privacy. We're not allowed to say, I will take money to help you evade sanctions. That's illegal. So they definitely, in my view, are really screwed here. And it's your typical Ethereum tokenomics BS. How do we make money from this thing? How do we incorporate more tokens so we can sell tokens? And it just really complicates a fundamental issue of open source software and financial privacy. And they've really screwed up the whole thing by trying to turn it into your typical yeah. altcoin yeah. bull business.
they monetized human privacy and it's gross. And this is the nuance that I think we'd missed until this point. And it kind of changes my opinion on the entire thing. Cause you know how I've, you know, how I've come down on this until now, but hearing this, it's like pretty hard to side with these guys. And I don't know if this is going to set a precedence for other open source products and projects and whatever initiatives. If, if really the issue here is that kind of, they, they, they created a quasi business around this as far as the law is concerned. Right. If they had given this away for free, because they were profit motivated, they centralized certain aspects of it so they could be a provider, so they could be an intermediary and kind of take fees and and push this torn token around. And then they pretended that it was decentralized because, hey, it's a DAO. Well, you created the DAO and you gave yourself a lot of the tokens. So is it, you know, how decentralized is it really? And we also know that from other Justice Department actions, the U.S. Justice Department does not think your DAO is anything other than a, um, I think it's called like a general partnership engaging in conspiracy. And that is literally the worst thing you want a law <laughs> enforcement agency to think about you. Yeah. Because the thing is, you know, if I commit a crime and Chris commits a crime, you know, there are two, there are two crimes there and Chris is responsible for one. I'm responsible for the other. If we are in a general partnership that's engaging in conspiracy, we are both responsible for two crimes now. The, the crimes are transitive in that sort of relationship. And so I think that kind of disproves DAOs as a very functional way of organizing to break the law in a way that the law can't punish you. They yeah. clearly are going yep. to. Yeah, refer to this case. Yeah. Read yeah. the read the the indictment. It's not that long. It is a Justice Department PDF, so open at your own risk. There seems to be, and uh, you know, take it for what it is, but there seems to be a higher tolerance in Ethereum for middlemen, right? It, I, I, I don't know for sure, but I have a sense the Bitcoin community would have been all over the centralization aspects of this quote unquote privacy tool. Like, because we, we debate Samurai wallet versus everything else, right? Uh, all the time. Like we we're constantly even debating the nuances of how the lightning channels are being opened, like down to the very technical implementations we are we are constantly debating. But in, in Ethereum, it seems to be almost like it's designed for middlemen to like set up like shop and essentially seek rent from people participating in the network. And so it's just like culturally accepted and they don't really think very critically about it because after analyzing this, I, I never would have used Tornado Cash. And if I if, if it was public information about these actors behind it, it would have been clear to me never to use this because of the third party risk. So, I mean, I, I don't see the third party risk necessarily. If you were using Tornado Cash before you heard about the OFAC sanctions, it still worked quite well for the end user in terms of providing privacy. It's just that Ethereum enables so much complexity that I don't think anyone could possibly understand it. And when we're faced with overwhelming complexity, but also a product that kind of does the thing you think it does, what would I do in that mm. situation? I would do what was expedient and convenient and lazy for me. And I would you know, yeah. trust that they had it all taken care of, in my view. That's probably fair. Yeah, that's probably fair. I think one of the other things you're pretty fair about on this show is that proof of work is good for a few things. And one of those has been anti-spam prevention. In fact, one of the original implementations and ideas of proof of work was anti-spam prevention. And the Tor network has been struggling with denial of service attacks. It's just 
beyond anything they've ever, ever measured before, which I think is a fascinating topic that I'd love to know more about. But putting the source of those denial of service attacks aside, they have to deal with the reality of them. And it sounds like they're adopting some very innovative technology to potentially solve some of this problem. And if by innovative, you mean proof of work, which has existed since the 90s, you'd be right. <laughs> you, you heard you heard my air quotes, right? You heard those. Oh, right. Yeah, I yeah. This is so great because Bitcoiners have been talking about how Tor has a tragedy of the commons problem that proof of work can help alleviate. Because since the Tor network is a anonymous way to send data online, if it's completely anonymous, and I think it is very, very anonymous, it's possible for one entity to spin up thousands or millions of users and flood the network with traffic, which takes down nodes, which allows them to map the network, which allows them to de-anonymize other users. Because if there's a crowd of 100 packets and I'm 98 of them, well, there are only two users there. I can kind of figure out where they are. So this has been a constant issue with Tor, and they've attempted to solve it thus far with, frankly, in my view, pretty centralizing solutions, whitelists for certain Tor node operators. You know, obviously, that's a political decision. Do you get on the whitelist or not? Um, and some technical optimizations to allow Tor nodes to kind of handle the CPU load of denial of service attacks better. But now they are implementing a proof of work feature so that Tor nodes can set a minimum proof of work to interact with them. And this will impose a disproportionate cost on spammers. It may make some Tor users kind of wait a little bit longer, but I think on average, it should probably uh, make DDoSing the network much more expensive and therefore improve Tor performance overall. So it's really a just great news, fascinating articles on it. And they are using the random X, or I think maybe EquiX algorithm, which comes from random X, which is a general purpose CPU proof of work algorithm. And of course, it's famously used by Monero. I don't really grok the CPU requirements or exactly the implementation of this on the user end, because essentially it's going to have them solve problems, but I doubt it's going to be exponentially difficult problems, but uh, it is going to be at least some cost to participate in the network. In the GitLab documents around the merge requests that pulled this feature into the Tor code base, you can see that the discussion is about how to create a mechanism, essentially a cost, that a user on a mobile phone that's accessing Tor is able to pay, but will add up for a small to large botnet that is spamming the network with requests. So it's just adding a little bit of processing power to Tor requests that you you know you can set the threshold. It's basically the number of zeros in the SHA sum you have to provide. But the I guess the number of leading zeros. And so you know if there's only one or two leading zeros, then your cell phone will find that solution in probably a second or two. But for the botnet that has ten thousand virtual CPUs in a cloud somewhere, you know they're going to have to run this proof of work every time 
they make a request to Tor, and that turns into you know millions and millions or trillions of proof of works, which really add up and add to their costs because you know they're they're buying hosting to run these attacks, and so the more work they have to do CPU side, the more expensive that becomes, and they don't own those CPU infrastructure uh, generally because most botnets are you know run in public uh, clouds, I guess. So they're paying for someone else's CPU cycles, and so if you make those cycles spike, you're going to really raise costs. Their provider is going to be like, hey, you're uh, you're toasting my servers over here. You're going to have to pay for that. Yeah, I hear a lot of ideas of how to use proof of work, and I usually roll my eyes. This one kind of makes sense. I like it. Well, we will be on tour doing. What do we use on tour? Is RoboSats on tour? I think so. Sure. Actually, my Lightning node. Yeah, I run a tour. Uh, service for my node too. So I guess we need to upgrade. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm curious about that. I am sort of wondering how this impacts a lot of the Lightning Network where most people who self-host on their home LAN are behind Tor. I'm planning to eventually move to ClearNet, but it's not till I have a dedicated machine with its own isolated connection and all of that. But ultimately, that's my plan. Well, there is a lot of technical discussion in the notes. Check it out if you are a total nerd. Can we go to my uh, favorite favorite story maybe of the quarter so far? I'm just going to sit down, put my feet up, and let you rip. Well, dear friends, this is a victory for Bitcoiners this week. So take one in because we don't often get wins, I think, at this scale. And one of the best and most cited sources for Bitcoin's energy use has been the analysis by Cambridge University. We've cited it several times, although we've also discussed some of our concerns and notes about how they do the calculation. And it turns out they have been overestimating Bitcoin's carbon intensity by a lot. And they've updated their numbers downward considerably. They have been overestimating by 16.8% in 2021 and 10.2% in 2022. The real issue is, is that uh, they were going by Greenpeace's claim that uh, Bitcoin used as much energy as Sweden because of the way they were deprecating the mining hardware. But it turns out the way they were deprecating the mining hardware was completely illogical and not actually how it works in the industry, which is a point we brought up on the show. So when that is taken into consideration, as well as some of the other alterations they made and how they are estimating the energy use, Cambridge now says that Bitcoin roughly uses about as much energy as tumble dryers in the U.S. In other words, as much as Christmas lights. And actually, I still suspect they're overestimating emissions by quite a bit due to some of the calculations that are out of date that they're doing. They haven't updated some of their math since January of 2022, and the mining industry has changed quite a bit since January of 2022. And so uh, there could be significant, like another 70-ish percent improvement to the numbers if they were to base it off of more recent data. They also talk about some of the ESG benefits of Bitcoin using um, flared off gas for like natural gas mines and orphaned gas wells. They say also some of like the trapped garbage emissions that if they started to take some of that use into their calculation, that there could be another significant impact drop in their model, which I think they should because that is an area that is picking up in a big way. But it's pretty positive. There's room for improvement. I think like additional like 70% improvement. I think their numbers are still quite a bit off. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. I'll link to some data in the notes. But even just getting it down to this level is a huge deal because a lot of the criticism and articles use this data as their base analysis. And so to see Cambridge attempt to try to get their numbers more in line with reality, I think indicates somewhat good intent on their part. 
in their own analysis, they say that they should probably start taking in Bitcoin, capturing, you know, methane and whatnot into their into their calculus, which they haven't done yet. And, you know, they're still looking at some of these things from mining data that was released uh, in 2022. And a lot of that has transitioned since China and a lot of that has transitioned to renewables in the states, especially like in the Texas area and other places. And that isn't in the data they're looking at right now. And it's interesting that this update to information about Bitcoin energy consumption seems to be happening amidst a general shifting of the mainstream narrative towards Bitcoin might be ESG, because you also shared this Bloomberg documentary with me on YouTube about basically Bloomberg going to Iceland and saying, hey, Bitcoin mining, it's actually better for the environment than other ways that Iceland wants to export their energy surplus globally, because they before Bitcoin mining, their only other option is really smelting aluminum, using the excess energy in Iceland to generate a lot of heat, smelt aluminum ore into, I guess, aluminum parts or ingots, and then ship them overseas, which of course is generating a huge amount of emissions and slag waste. So do you think this has something to do with the BlackRock ETF proposal and basically institutional investors in Bitcoin wanting to put it into a more ESG bucket and make sure that there's less public backlash against them for embracing this asset class? I think that's kind of it. I think you've kind of nailed it. I think what we're going to see here is at least a basket of Bitcoin backed companies that are considered ESG companies. And BlackRock will be happy to include them in their ESG investment portfolios, no doubt about it. The reason why I say that so confidently is I I really consider myself a student of the media and uh, I really pay attention to how a piece is put together, who's featured in the piece, the order of the information, the story arc that they create, the inevitable conclusion that they're trying to bring you to, the, the tone of it, the music, the production. I really watch all of it. And I always have for a long time. I used to do a podcast just based around that. And what I noticed in this Bloomberg video, it's an eight minute video. We have it linked in the show notes. They went all out. I mean, beautiful production starts with beautiful music, beautiful aerial shots of Iceland. Then it builds the case for how important the environment is to the culture of Iceland. Then it shows representative minorities from different areas that talk about the environmental and job benefits of Bitcoin. Then it directly compares how much better Bitcoin is for the environment and just for the culture of Iceland, since they really, really, really have a, a, a you know, a, a strong respect for their ecology and their and, and their environment, and they don't want to build a bunch of more power plants. It builds that whole case, demonstrates how Bitcoin can create jobs without having to bring in these smelter operations that require more power plants. It demonstrates how Bitcoin can capture stranded energy and off gases and how it's clean. And they even say they even have a moment in there where they where they debunk the mining meme and they say it's not really mining. And they start referring to it as generating Bitcoin. It is the most positively structured media coverage I have ever seen about Bitcoin energy. And it came from Bloomberg, a financial outlet. To me, even above and beyond what they said in the piece, which was very, 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 very positive, the way they structured it and the way they who they have picked in there and the story that they tell is even more telling than anything else. And to me, it seemed clear they're trying to make it. There is a lot of Bitcoin operations that are very ESG friendly. And in this eight minute piece, they even say, yeah, there are some Bitcoin operations that use fossil fuels and we don't like that. But let us tell you about this. And they make a clear distinction. Yeah, I have to say it was a really impressive piece of media 
I haven't seen such good Bitcoin marketing before, frankly. Yeah, especially when it comes to energy. So it seems like there is a shift in popular narratives around Bitcoin, energy, and ESG, which I have to say is welcome because the attacks were pretty stupid and quite infuriating. So I think that this is probably our most positive and least frustrated energy section we have ever had on this podcast. Yeah. Well, it's like they're catching up to stuff that we've been saying for the entire run of the podcast from the very beginning. And for eight years before that. But it's it's now it's actually happening. And I think you nailed it. It's got to be the BlackRock effect. And it's not just BlackRock, you know, Fidelity and eight others are in there. Um, it's It's got to be that because they want to be able to start to market this thing. So they have to start to shift public opinion a little bit. And they don't have to change everyone's opinion. They just have to change the investor class. And that's who's watching Bloomberg. And we are not cheerleading big financial institutions getting into Bitcoin. We're observing how they have certain incentives around Bitcoin, both financial and also, you know, there's this social dimension too that they have to be aware of because these are entities that are subject to politics and popular opinion. I have to say, I think we're also seeing a demonstration of how the media works here and how they'll construct whatever narrative their owners want. And we've watched them for 13 years crap all over this thing. And then within three months, <laughs> you completely do a 180 because the ownership has changed their position. I mean, this is, I think, a pretty obvious demonstration of what people are critical of the media for in an area where we understand a lot about. And so you can see how we've gone from constantly pushing back against these things these people are saying to now showing and highlighting them. It's not a coincidence. I agree with everything you're saying, except I don't like the term the media because it makes media sound like a singular Yeah, I should say group. the large corporate owned media. And anyone can produce media. We've had Bitcoin media since the beginning, including podcasts like this. But compared to Bloomberg, it feels very low rent. So the, I think the difference is, you know, you can see the kind of power of a budget in producing compelling marketing materials in that video. I mean, I've always felt like their noise to signal ratio has always been low versus the independent Bitcoin media. So I don't know if I agree with the low rent because I look at it from more of a signal to noise ratio. But uh, this is a moment. This is a moment. I mean, I'm, t I'm not kidding you when I tell you this is one of my most I, I care about this story more than I care about the BlackRock ETF story, because this was the continuous kill shot for Bitcoin adoption is if you use Bitcoin, you're boiling the oceans, you're responsible directly for global warming, you're a bad person. And the number one thing that could take Bitcoin down is a lack of adoption. And all the other narratives don't check out. But people are so freaked out about global warming, they're not having kids. I have multiple friends that have opted not to have kids because of global warming, and they don't want to contribute at all to global warming. I don't mean to push back on people's feelings about this. I don't think global warming is the only reason. I think that the financial reality sure, yeah. of wages and cost, and then also you have global warming. It's a bit more satisfying to say global warming than, yeah, we just can't afford it. Like every, yeah, you know, and they every don't articulate that concern. I agree with you there. But my point, my point remains, I think it, it could be if a coordinated effort were to double down on the environmental message, it could be a significant multi-year barrier to adoption. Right. And every, I mean, I think that the big environmental attacks over the past couple of years, like the Greenpeace anti-Bitcoin campaign that was funded by Ripple, which is a financial scam, you know, the, the nuclear Bitcoin skull, every, every one of these big attempts ended in humiliation for their instigators because 
I think it is very difficult to espouse a logical argument that says that Bitcoin mining is worse than other industrial uses of electricity. I mean, you might get to the point where you say, well, industrial uses of electricity are wrong. Well, now you're advocating for a human population that's less than a thousandth of its current level. So, I mean, you know, that's pretty controversial, I think. I mean, not to really belabor this point, but compared to all types of industrial stuff, like I was watching a documentary on aluminum and they run water through that plant 24-7. I mean, they really ramp it up during the day during production, but they have to keep the smelter running all day, all night, and they have to keep it cooled. And so they basically have like a fire hose equivalent of water 24-7, and then they ramp it up during the day. So it's not just the electrical use, it's the water use, it's the contamination of that water and the runoff. And compared to Bitcoin generation, it is, well, it is apples and oranges. Not to mention the astronomical damage to the earth that gold mining does. Just go to Google Images or Bing Images or whatever, go duck it. And go I mean, any look mining. for gold mine images. We're not saying we're going to live in a future without copper. There's still going to need to be copper strip mines that are trashing yeah. ecosystems for us to live with all the stuff we have today. I'm not trying to argue whataboutism here, Dad. I'm just trying to, I'm, and I'm not trying to draw equivalencies. I'm trying to just bring a little rationality to the problem and put it in perspective. It's a good point. Sorry. Every time you waved a flag, I just charged at it. Am I colorblind <laughs> or something? Well, no, and this is a charge. It's a charge. It is a charge. Ha, get it? Charged. Ha, get it? Uh, I guess pun intended issue. The other last point they made in that documentary, but they just made it really briefly, is they pointed out that the Bitcoin load can be shut off on demand and that they kind of infer you can't do that with other data center loads. And I think that's just such a, a beautifully unique thing about Bitcoin. And I, my, I watched this documentary with my wife last night and we talked about this after the fact that Bitcoin is a data center load that can be a buyer of last resort for these electrical companies. They, ba they basically can buy the unwanted power. And then when they do need that power, they can turn off instantly, essentially. And Bitcoin just doesn't care. The Bitcoin network just doesn't care about it. You could have, you know, hundreds of data centers go offline and Bitcoin would continue to work. And you just don't have that with other data center loads. No, you know, you can't take out multiple regions of AWS and have things just continue to work for Netflix. And I think the industry hasn't really wrapped their head around that. But that is a it seems like a small detail to us because we just naturally understand it. But when the industry wraps their head around it, I think it's going to be a major, major thing for them. But with all that said, I'll mention this episode of the Bitcoin Dad Pod is brought to you by my podcast network over at jupiterbroadcasting.com. A lot of fine pods over there, I must say. I'm quite fond of all of them, so I'll just encourage you to check them out. Coder Radio just came out, and in there we talk about the cybersecurity division of the U.S. government that is looking at potentially funding open source development, sort of picking losers and winners in a sense. Uh, but we talk about why they're doing it and what they're trying to accomplish. And then, of course, in Linux Unplugged recently, we tried a fresh take at getting Linux on the new Apple M hardware. And you know what? The results were better than I expected. Details at jupiterbroadcasting.com. And this week's Bitcoin Optech is a meaty one. The first article is a disclosure of a past Lightning Network vulnerability relating to fake funding. And there's a list of the last releases of Lightning Network software that uh, I guess that address the vulnerability. So if you have a number on this list or above, you're okay. LND 0 0.16.0, make sure you're at least there. And what this vulnerability allows an attacker to do is basically to crash your node by opening a million channels with you that have no funding. So when you receive a request from my node, 
I say, hey, I'm about to open a channel with you. And your node is like, cool, I'll store some data relating to the channel open and wait for it to open. But I don't have to open it. I don't have to prove that I have a UTXO ready to go. So I can just keep on doing this until your node goes offline or run, starts running really slowly. So this is a denial of service attack. It's a pretty basic one. The fact that this was not caught until recently is very worrying. So remember, Lightning, don't put funds you would be too upset to lose on there. Just a thought. Yeah, or anything that's a hot wallet anywhere. I think that, you know, Lightning, though, in particular, and it seems like they, they took advantage of a mechanism where Lightning tries to get this particular transaction done as fast as possible. So it gives priority to this transaction. And if you flood it, it just keeps doing that until essentially it can't do anything else. And it, it takes your node offline. That is um, hard to implement unless you have like direct manual command line controls over Lightning. So that's maybe why it really hasn't cropped up is because there's not a lot of people that are using Lightning that way unless they're trying to expose these kind of vulnerabilities. Most people just have L&D or, or Core Lightning running and you know maybe they have a UI on top of it, maybe they don't, and they're just they're connecting their wallets. They're not using these tools, the like Lightning CLI stuff at the command line beyond just troubleshooting. I think it's still a early adopter kind of network. And so as a result, you don't have too many opportunities to make money by crashing people's Lightning nodes yet. But if there was a way to make money from this, you know the Lazarus group would be all over it. They're just spending their time figuring out how to crack Ethereum smart contracts and compromise yeah. Ethereum token projects <laughs> because there's more money there for them right now. Yep. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that is the thing is this uh, it is an adversarial environment out there and you need to kind of, you know, that's why we often advocate just cold storage. Don't worry about it because it is an adversarial environment. If you have something that's a hot wallet, inevitably there's somebody out there that wants it. And if software sits for long enough, these types of things get discovered There's a universal law. I think there is also a note about friend of the show, Brandon Black, posting to the Bitcoin dev mailing list about a covenant proposal. I think Brendan's proposal is not necessarily a serious, let's open a BIP and incorporate this into Bitcoin. But what he seems to be trying to do is to demonstrate how the various Bitcoin covenant proposals, op, check, template, verify, CTV, SIG hash, any prev out, APO, and op, TX hash is the proposal that he's combining with check SIG from stack. But he's, he's demonstrating how these various covenant proposals actually work, how they compare with each other. And I think it's an attempt to educate developers about the specific qualities of these covenants, because it seems that covenants are the next big feature in Bitcoin. I don't know if they get there before the next software fork or after it, but it seems like there's a lot of momentum for that. And just to review, covenant comes from the legal term, which is basically a restriction in a legal contract. And so covenant proposals are a way of writing a, a condition on a Bitcoin transaction so that it needs to be spent in a certain way. And while that sounds bad, initially everyone thought, oh, that's so scary. What if the US government makes Coinbase send all of their Bitcoin into a covenant proposal that the US government has to add a signature to every transaction and whitelist transactions, they could control Bitcoin. No, they could just do that with a multi-sig already. And a covenant's you know, probably a little too smart for the government to, to use at this point, certainly. And instead, covenants give you ways to say, you know, do drive chains, but with a covenant instead of a new address type. Or, you know, do something like ARC, which is this sort of semi-custodial, but you can withdraw at any time construction that allows you to do 
transactions and onboard people with different properties. And it has fewer of the restrictions of lightning, but with the limitation that you have to be online all the time. So it's pretty interesting stuff. It's I mean, it's definitely very developer-y, but might be worth thinking about it if you're interested in the direction of future Bitcoin soft fork development. And it feels like after a couple of weeks of sort of slow optics, things are really moving along again. And not only in the development area, but just in the community as well. And you can move along to getting in touch with us. You can always email us at BitcoinDadPod at ProtonMail.com or try doing it on X, Bitcoin DadPod on there. Or do the real-time chat thing. We have Matrix going with a Bitcoin room that you are welcome to hang out in. You'll have links in the show notes you can check. We like Element. Fluffy Chat's pretty good. I've been experimenting with a few others, but I feel like Element's still the, the client of choice. And then you get that all connected up to like a Matrix.org account and come hang out with us. DJ from Podverse boosts in 30,000 sats over two boosts at dad. Indictment rhymes with incitement. Chris can self-correct his later mumbling. If you discuss wildly bad predictions in Paul Krugman, don't forget his internet prediction. Recently visited sans facts. I agree with Chris's take on establishment plus dad's take on populism. The latter is not the people, but mostly just another pandering face of the former, like a friendlier slave master. Oy, that's oh, a, oh yeah, he went for it. And Krugman's uh, prediction, right, was that the internet would have no greater impact than the fax machine did on business and the economy. I mean, he's, he's just an, an absolute joke in so many ways. I'm sure he's a very nice guy, but, uh, you know, he looks like he wears a sweater all the time. He's the kind of guy I'd like to see after, like, three whiskeys. Then I'd like to see what kind of guy he is. Have you ever drunk three whiskeys, Chris? Let's be honest. Oh, I really overdid it in my younger years. Sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, t- today would be rough. Rough. Also, how do I get Fountain to give me sats again? My account stopped getting paid six months ago. New account on new device plus new residential IP didn't restart the gravy train, but the app is too experimental, fast-changing, buggy to justify using it as my main podcast consumption app. I like the ideas that they pilot, however. Hopefully AntennaPod integrates those value-for-value changes without too much breakage. Look, I agree. I didn't love the Fountain experience, especially the the way that they kind of charge fees on the the boosts and the wallet transactions. I've been using Podverse, and I like how it integrates with Albi. I think that's a very smooth experience. AntennaPod could do the exact same thing, and I would be back there in a moment. I love AntennaPod. Such a great project but just doesn't have value for value. Yeah, AntennaPod could have been our great hope. AntennaPod could have been the one. Uh, it's you know open source. It's got so many nice features. It has some power user features that podcast listeners that have been listening for a while really like. It's just gotten so stagnant. And there is a real renaissance happening in podcasting that is something like I haven't seen in 15 years. And it's so damn exciting. And AntennaPod is just on the fringes of it. And they just don't seem to have the organization required to actually stay competitive. And I think Fountain is probably two-point releases away from being pretty decent on Android because the current beta builds there minus a couple of things. Uh, Podverse has gotten a lot better on Android as well, but they're still new. It reminds me very much of distros. Back in the day, I would use a distro for six, seven months, and then I'd hop to a different distro. And that's kind of how I have been with the podcasting 2.0 apps. On the iOS side, uh, the apps seem to be in a lot better shape. Fountain has been really solid now for months, and Castomatic is one of the best podcast apps I've ever used, and it's a podcasting 2.0 app with all the features. It's just iOS only. But because I think that developer made that focus choice, it's resolved and just a fantastic app. It is one of the reasons I still go to my iOS phone when I'm doing tests and whatnot is I always want to check it in Castomatic because I know Castomatic's 
the one to go to. So it's it is tricky. I, I I wish I could recommend AntennaPod, but I'm really just so disappointed that they have just fallen behind in such an exciting time in podcasting. It's it needs to be the people's app and Pocket Casts and other apps are just gonna they're gonna lap it before they catch up. There's been proposals to integrate some of this stuff for like two years now, and they just don't seem to be able to get off the pot. Hennigan comes in with twenty thousand sats using Fountain. It's just great chat as always. Zap zap. Zap zap. Thank you. Extropian also boosts in twenty thousand sats with a message, a little value for value. Well, hello, Extropian. Thank you. Thank you for your value. We value it. Yeah, we do. The Muso came in with 10,000 sats using Podverse. Thanks for your continuing to put this podcast together. Thank you for the recognition, Muso. Appreciate it. Have you been listening to my private conversations? It feels like, you know, you thought I might stop or something. <laughs> Maybe somebody got a sense of the amount of work. Brewgator also sent in 10,000 sats listening to Artificial Targets. Love the content. Insightful as always. Is there a reason you use Cash App versus Strike? I would love to use the Cash App, but can't stomach those fees when buying, especially when Strike does it for free. Thanks for all you guys do. Uh, No, there's no reason. It's just that I got off KYC applications before Strike launched, and so it just doesn't occur to me that it's an option because I never used it. I like Strike. Uh, I have used it, and I did use it quite a bit until the Prime Trust stuff went down, and I used that as an opportunity to go back and check out what Cash App is doing because I like the folks behind Cash App. And the really sweet thing about Cash App is that there does seem to be a decent user base there. So like I can pay friends and family using Cash App, but additionally, they have the Cash App debit card and that actually they'll mail you a physical debit card that'll use the balance in the Cash App. And it also, if you have touch to pay on your phone, it'll act as a card you can use in the you know Apple or Google Play ecosystem. And the really slick thing about that is you can send sats from Lightning to the Cash App. You could cash them out immediately, assuming you're keeping track of everything. And then that balance is instantly available on that debit card. So you can go from sats on Lightning to a spendable debit card that you can use any at any store in the United States, at least, uh, in about 25 seconds, however long it takes you to use the Lightning Network, which is pretty damn quick. And I love that functionality. It's so crazy. I don't use it very often, but when you're trying to demonstrate to noobs how they could, you know, because some people, they don't really, they're not so interested in in like holding it forever. And so how well, how do I actually spend it? Well, here's a demonstration. You can spend it on anything if you want, if you just want to cash it out, you can use this app to do it. Cash App kind of is a more comprehensive set of solutions for that. But I do think that Strike being uh, now really in a good position with their with their custody infrastructure and being a Bitcoin only company is a great consideration if it's available in your country and they are expanding. So I think it's worth keeping an eye on. But there is that old KYC bugaboo. At Halleck boosts in 10,000 sats. If open source developers are accomplices to any illegal activities their tools are used for, shouldn't my hardware store need to KYC me too? Who knows what I might do with that hammer? Well, actually, Halleck, two stories here. One, I was in a hardware store when an obvious tweaker walked in and was trying to buy some sort of tool for cutting bike locks, you know, like a a powered tool. And it was interesting because there was this conflict where they were like, we want your money, but we know you're going to do something bad. And two, in China, when you buy a cleaver for like cutting meat, uh, cleavers are one of the things in China that are sort of like could be used as a weapon because China is uh, the mainland China is very uh, controlled by the POC, you know, no firearms whatsoever for non-military 
possession. But cleavers are a thing that people need because they have to chop up your vegetables and your meat, but they also have this sort of, you know, they could potentially be used as a weapon. And at least in some provinces in China, when you bought a cleaver, they started registering those purchases and actually laser engraving a mark on the uh, cleaver, like a QR code that tied back to your ID. So uh, yes, you, we very easily could be in a world where hammers, knives, anything gets tied to your government ID because China is already experimenting with that. Yeah, and there's lots of private data broker companies that would love to make those connections available for sale anyway. So even if the stores don't do it directly, <laughs> there's a data broker. Happy to do it for Dr. Doggy Balls comes in with 15,000 sats from the podcast index. Hey, fellas, fairly new to the pod after all the years of listening to Jupiter Broadcasting shows, but I've really been enjoying it. Have you all covered Noster at all? Well, it's not Bitcoin. The Zap seemed like a great way to bootstrap more Lightning users, thus decreasing the friction for new users to boost. I think Zaps are Bitcoin. Yeah, right? they are. Yeah. They just call, they're basically a boost. They just call it Zaps. Uh, have you considered including some Noster content at some, at some point? It's always a great alternative to the increasingly terrible legacy social media landscape. I plan on hounding Chris about this on various shows with boosts. Oh, good. <laughs> I do need some motivation. Yeah, me too. I, I just don't use social media, so I'm less excited about the new social media options. Yeah, yeah. Noster appeals to me from a freedom tech community standpoint. That's always, you know, something I like to dabble in. But it doesn't appeal from me from like a new social network paradigm. But you know what they say in the new economy, protection is connection. So it's not always bad to build out a little social network amongst like-minded thinkers. For me, I just sort of had dialed back my social media use in general. I could see getting into Noster and sort of putting the other ones aside and building a community over there because it is very Bitcoin focused. But I would say this, Dr. Doggy Balls, we have not necessarily spoken directly a lot about Noster, but some of the information from people that are you know pretty well researched in this area, some of their posts have been on Noster more these days. And so I've been keeping an eye on the discussions over there so we can refer to some of what those people are talking about. And so we are keeping an eye on Noster in terms of show content and you know getting it takes from various sources. Anonymous boosts in 79.37 sats over four boosts with the message, drive chains are a no for me, not interested in messing with minor incentives. It might centralize mining because building blocks could become very specialized, just like that scam called Ethereum. I think that the MEV mining concerns of drive chains are a legitimate criticism. I just wonder how we could prove that one way or another. It continues saying cross input signature aggregation is a much more important soft fork. You know, I don't know too much about CISA, I think is the acronym. Uh, feel free to send an email with some links if you want me to get faster educated on that. That would be very interesting. And Anonymous is much more interested in APO and CTV. Ends with a popcorn boost. Thank you so much for those sats. That's a high signal boost. Thank you. I like that. Boy, I think we're going to have more to say on drive chains in the future. So feel free to continue to write in anonymous and uh, get the wheels turning so we can um, have the best discussion possible. Bob B boosts in with 6,000 sats from the podcast index. Oak node is still broke. Umbral server won't start apps. Oh, what to do next? Haiku plus sats. That's pretty good. Yeah, the Umbral uh, stuck app thing is a common thread I see on the Umbral forums, which I troll a couple of times a month just to get a sense of what's going on with Umbral. And I see the stuck apps problem a lot. Now, I don't know if you've tried, Bob, but you can absolutely SSH in, go to wherever Umbral is installed, go into the scripts directory, and then they have an app management script that you can use to list your containers. You can stop and start individual containers. Often what happens is it's a dependency problem. A lot of these apps 
are going to depend on Lightning being fully functional and Bitcoin Core being fully functional. And if they start before those are completely available, they kind of get stuck in a waiting state. And you can go into the command line and restart those individual apps using the Umbral script tooling. And sometimes that'll turn things around for you. So that's something to consider. And you can probably troll around on their forums because this is a problem people have had. It is a problem I've run into, uh, especially with uh, some of the Lightning management apps. But generally restarting the container solves those problems. Thank you so much for the haiku and the boost. Faraday Fedora sends in a row of ducks with the message, wish I could make it to Linux Fest Northwest. I'm sure Bitcoin dad will find a bunk buddy. Well, could have been you, Faraday. Man. That's all I'm saying. I'd really like to meet Faraday. <sighs> I wish we were so baller in money. We could just like sponsor listeners to come out. Uh, maybe one day. Careful. He, he's going to reference that at million dollar Bitcoin and be like, Chris, where's my ticket? <laughs> this does not constitute a promise to travel. Avi 1984 comes in with 8,000 sats across two boosts using Fountain. Uh, is this Oppie the one we're always talking about? He liked that, I think. Uh, well, yes, I accidentally hit is. the boost button before I could finish trying. So here's a double boost. The quote is either very good or very ominous. Nicely done making uh, me a boost in to find out. Though I doubt you'll say something like that unless it was good intentions. This is the Opie involved with Linux and Jupiter Broadcasting, who is active on other shows, right? Yep. That A, makes them famous in my book. And B, you know, some of these nicknames, they really stick out. You put 1984 in your nickname and it's invoking like the book and like it's, it's something that sticks, right? So like when you're talking about people that boost in, a lot of the regulars we talk about internally when we're off microphone, people who regularly boost in, they come up, we talk about them. We really appreciate them. I read somewhere that something like 23% of all pin code passwords for bank accounts in the U.S. are 1984. Wow. Rusty Shackerford, Shackleford, I see you. I see what you did out there, R. Shackleford. I, I, I know you. Thousand sats, no message provided because Dale never would expose his real identity. Thank you, everybody who boosted in. We had 13 boosters, unique boosters, about 18 boosts in total. And we came away with 140,514 sats. I'd love, love to see the dad pod break 200,000 sats as the floor going forward because, you know, we're trying to put a lot of signal into the show trying to do a lot of research and uh, getting to that new milestone would really kind of acknowledge that work. If you want to boost in, well, there's a couple of ways. You want to keep your antenna pods or your pocket cast or whatever. Maybe it's your Apple podcast. Well, then go get Albie. Get Albie.com. Get that topped off. They got a couple options directly like MoonPay and another option directly in the app. Or you can use Strike or Cash App, anything on the Lighting Network. I mean, you could use RoboSats if you want and get it into Albie. Then you head on over to the podcast index and you boost the show from the Bitcoin dad pod entry on the podcast index. But the beautiful thing is, guys, is once you have those sats on the Lighting Network, there is tons of applications out there. In fact, go check out transcribe.fm. You can throw a few sats at these folks and they'll transcribe any podcast you want in a beautiful, nice, multiple format option. There's more and more things to do with your sats. So it's just a lot of great reasons to have Albie. If you're ready to experience all the awesome stuff happening in podcasting 2.0, get a new podcast app at podcastapps.com. Fountain, Podverse, Castomatic, a couple of the best out there. They're all over there at podcastapps.com and you can boost directly from those apps once you get sat into those guys. And thanks everybody who takes the time to support the show. This has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod recorded on September 1st, 2023. I'm your Bitcoin Dad and I'm here as always with me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.